The location was Belgium, the culprit, an unsuspecting farmer just trying to get his day's work done. But one man's inconvenience is another man's act of aggression. Thanks to a simple landscaping decision, Belgium is a little larger, France smaller. A farmer was driving his tractor in his farm in Belgium. He came across a stone in his way. It annoyed him. So he did what anyone might do, moved it. But it wasn't just an inconvenient stone. It was a border marker. He actually changed the border between France and Belgium, giving Belgium about seven feet more land. Belgian and French officials laughed it off, one saying that they think they'll be able to avoid a border war this time. But if the farmer doesn't comply, he must face legal trouble. One little stone, enormous implications. Christians know all about that. Resurrection Sunday, when that stone from Christ's tomb was rolled away, the kingdom's border has been expanding ever since. Welcome to Haven Today. I'm Charles Morris, sharing the great story with you that's all about Jesus. And we're in a series here on Thursday called Worshiping with the Early Church. And in the next few minutes, we'll be hearing some of the church's earliest songs, and we'll dig into the Gospel of John, where Jesus talks about our need for living water. But before we get to that, I'd like to send you this collection of the earliest songs of the Christian church set to modern music. It's called The Odes Project. These songs would have been sung by the first Christians in the first century, some of whom would have seen Christ face to face. They would have walked with him beside the Sea of Galilee. What better time than today to remember our spiritual roots and to worship with the early church. After the program, I want to send you a copy of the Odes Project CD as our way of saying thank you for your gift to Haven Today. We're listeners supported. So would you give us a call after the program at 800 654 2836? That's 800 654 2836. Or just visit our website and listen to the samples that we have from these hymns. And if you want to know more about the Odes Project, you can find out more under our new blog post about the Odes by visiting haventoday.org. Haventoday.org. Then you can make your gift to the ministry and I would ask for your generosity, but be sure and ask for your copy of this special CD. In a moment, we're going to be looking to the Gospel of John. We're going to look at Jesus as our living water. But let's get started first by listening to Ode number 12, Flow Through Me. i 
with a 120-voice choir from Riverbend Church in Austin, Texas, Ode 26, with the music composed by John Schreiner. From the east and to the west, here on this haven today that we're calling Worshiping with the Early Church. Now, let's visit a passage of Scripture together. Many of the odes that we've been airing have a Johannian feel to them. Let's read some of John chapter 4 together. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John, although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. The first six verses of John chapter 4. First, let's look at the geographical setting for this story of Jesus, only contained in the New Testament in John's Gospel. Jesus sits down by Jacob's well. He's tired. It's a long walk from Jerusalem. Mount Gerizim is in the background in plain view. In fact, we're standing on part of the mountain that's a little under 3,000 feet high. This was the place of the Deuteronomic blessings. Mount Ebal is nearby to the north, the mountain where Moses commended an altar to be built. Jacob's well and Mount Gerizim give us the exact place that's still there today, several miles north of Jerusalem in Palestinian-occupied territory. An Orthodox monastery is located there with a chapel built covering the well on what is now a part of the West Bank. Just like today, back then Jews were not welcome, and it could be dangerous. We're also told this is near where Jacob gave his son Joseph a parcel of land at Shechem that he had purchased from the sons of Hamor. This well is near where Joseph was buried upon the return from Egypt. Verse 7, John 4. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. John gives us a little aside here in his narrative. Jews don't associate with Samaritans. That little statement masks a long history of strained relations between Jews and Gentiles at the time. I have a friend who spent a year studying in Israel about 25 years ago when the border was still open with Palestinian territory. My friend Dan took a day off from his studies and decided to follow the footsteps of Jesus. He hiked the road and was very tired when he entered the chapel. But before sitting, he was able to take a drink from this well. He tells me it was the sweetest water he ever drank, an underground spring feeding the well, which has never run dry. Second, religiously speaking, the Samaritan scriptures only included the Pentateuch. The Jews also included the writings and the prophets still recognized today as the Hebrew Bible. Some Jews were willing to eat with Samaritans. Socially, good Jews would have avoided contact with Samaritans, especially a woman. Jews not associating with Samaritans was far more far-reaching than just sharing water from the same jug. Samaritans were Gentiles and were considered not just unclean. They were continually unclean. Whatever they lay on, sat on, and rode on was unclean. Their saliva, even their urine, was considered unclean. Most certainly, a rabbi or Jewish teacher like Jesus would not have started a theological discussion with a woman much less a Samaritan or Gentile woman. 
Yet here he is, before the crucifixion, before the resurrection, before Pentecost, not only asking for a drink of this well-known water, but offering her a different kind of water. He was breaking down all the social and religious barriers for the sake of his kingdom. Verse 10, John 4, Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, You have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did also his sons and his flocks and herds? Jesus answered, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. From the Greek, we understand that he was offering this woman living water, not just water from some other well. This woman wasn't used to having theological discussions, much less the double entendre Jesus meant water welling up for eternal life. She probably didn't capture his meaning that came from Samaritan scriptures and the entire Hebrew Bible. In the ancient Near East, spring water was greatly sought for life as opposed to stagnant water that signified death. God was known to be the source and giver of life. In Numbers 10, 3 through 11, water gushes out of the rock, supplying the Israelites with badly needed refreshment. In Jeremiah 2:13, God laments that his people have forsaken him, the spring of living water. In Isaiah 12:3, the prophet envisions the wells of salvation in the last days. Rabbinic thought associated the provision of water with the coming of the Messiah. In John's Gospel, Jesus is identified explicitly with the creator and life giver. It transcended John's water baptism, Jewish ceremonial purification, proselyte baptism, and the torchlight and water-pouring symbolism of the Feast of Tabernacles. It supersedes nurturing or healing waters such as Jacob's well and the pools of Bethesda and Siloam. We read of the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophetic vision of living water in Zechariah. Jesus inaugurated the age of God's abundance. Jesus' offer of living water signals the reversal of the curse and the barrenness that are characteristic of the old fallen world. A few chapters later, Jesus would stand on the portico in the temple in Jerusalem and unveil God, the Holy Spirit. At the Feast of Tabernacles, he would shout in a loud voice in John 7, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, rivers of living water will flow from within them. By this he meant the Spirit, whom those who had believed in him would later receive. Up to that time the Spirit had not been given, since Jesus had not yet been glorified. On hearing his words, some of the people said, Surely this man is the prophet. Others said, He is the Messiah. Back to our main text in John chapter 4. The woman at the well said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now the phrase, will in him become a supply of water welling up to eternal life, is reminiscent of Isaiah's vision of people joyfully drawing water from the wells of salvation in the last days. That's Isaiah 12.3. In the future age, envisioned by the prophet, people will neither hunger nor thirst. Isaiah 49.10, and Yahweh will make an everlasting covenant with all those, Jews as well as Gentiles and Samaritans. And now Jesus reveals himself 
as the only Redeemer, and the redemption he brought was for all people, including a continually unclean Samaritan woman. Only he could know her life before and offer her eternal life to come. John 4, verse 16, he told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands, and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We, meaning Jews, worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming, and has now come, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that the Messiah, called Christ, is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Here we have this woman, a Samaritan, in the very place where Isaiah had lived and prophesied in the northern kingdom, and she wouldn't have known the words of the prophet in Isaiah 55, 4 and 5, who followed the invitation, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters that your soul may live. She wouldn't have known Isaiah saying, If people forsake their wicked ways, God in his mercy will freely pardon. Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Jesus was in short order, turning the conversation to the woman's immoral lifestyle and confronting her with her sin. She was trying to draw on the teaching she had been taught, for Samaritans believed in a coming Messiah, or Tahib, but their Messiah would be only a special teacher, not the anointed one coming to save all people forever. It's only here in John 4.22 that the actual word for salvation in Greek, soteria, is used in the entire gospel. Jesus says literally, I, Jesus, speak. I am ego me. The words he less frequently used referring to himself as God, the one. Here are the same words that God spoke to Moses when he asked the father at the burning bush, whom shall I say sent me? And God replies from the bush, tell them I am has sent you. John four twenty six. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. The conversation ends then, as the disciples return with food. Note it's probably not meat, as the authorized version reports, for meat sold in the nearby town would have been unclean. Meat means food, and that's what the King James meant. And they show up with dinner, wondering what in the world is the rabbi doing, speaking to this Samaritan woman. She goes back into town. Many townspeople return with her. They believe, we are told. While she's gone, the disciples are back to what they are good at. They brought food. They urge him to eat. He tells them the food he offers is so much more important than what they purchased in the nearby market. The long story ends with Samaritans coming to faith in the Messiah and the people saying to the woman they normally would have never spoken to in John 4.42, We no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves and we know that this man really is the savior of the world. Fill yourselves with living water. 
That was ode number 30, Fill Yourselves with Living Water, here on this haven today called Worshiping with the Early Church. I'm Charles Morris. I want to send you a copy of the CD, The Odes Project, that we have as our thanks for your gift to the ministry. Your generosity is so greatly appreciated. So why don't you go visit our website right now? Plan to spend a few minutes with us there. If you want to know the scholarly historical background of the Odes, how we know what it is and why it is, well, we've put up a special article by a scholar that we've had on the program, and it's there in our blog section that you can see at the top of our website, haventoday.org. That's haventoday.org. You can also watch the video we've posted and listen to sample tracks from the Odes. It's all there on the website, and then you can make your gift and ask for a copy of the CD, haventoday.org. Or why don't you give us a call right now and make your gift to the ministry, but ask for the Odes Project. Our number to call is 800-654-2836. I'm Charles Morris. Thank you so much for joining me. Won't you come back again tomorrow when again we get to share together the great story. It's all about Jesus here on Haven Today. Here for your encouragement and your walk with Jesus, I'm Charles Morris with Haven Ministries, inviting you to anchor your day in God's Word. In 1885, the hymn writer Frederick Whitfield penned these words, My soul is dark and guilty. Now there's a song that goes to the heart of the problem. Sin is not just a matter of what we say or what we do, We bear the fruit of sin because the seeds of sin have been planted in our hearts. The preacher of Ecclesiastes assures us that there is a time for planting and a time for uprooting. For followers of Jesus, that time is daily. The Word of God is a seed. We must plant it deep down inside our hearts every day. Only then will we see the weeds of sin growing up all around it and pull them up by the root. Spend more time with Jesus with Anchor Devotional. Visit GetAnchor.com.